Amen. Well, hello. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to start with. Then we're going to shuck and jive a little bit through different parts of Scripture, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is a great place to start. Please feel free to tap or turn your way there. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, do not panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen. And we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation. So, we uh, have to pick back up something we started. I did one sermon on it, and then the pandemic hit. And I'm not going to say I'm happy that the pandemic hit, but if there's anything that I was like, okay, to have another year to kind of look at before I kept talking about it, uh, this was that category. <laughs> when you talk about what it is, uh, to be a person, when it talks about, the scripture talks about what God understands gender to be and love to be and sexuality to be. It's heavy stuff. And when you hear it biblically, you find that God doesn't agree with our culture on a lot of this stuff. And if you're newer to Hope Church and you're exploring Christianity, some of the stuff that we talk about with this is going to seem very difficult. So my, my plea with you is to hear us out. Give us the mercy of, of hearing the argument in its entirety. Because if you leave as soon as you're mad, uh, you'll probably leave today. Uh, let's just be real. But, but, but if you give us a minute, it, even if you don't agree with us, I think you'll at least understand the position. Hopefully you'll understand the heart with which we speak this position. Because I, I don't know if there is a place where our culture opposes God more than the way we think about gender and sexuality, except for one other place. The one other place is, unfortunately, the greatest commandment God's given us, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think we break that one more. And we're actually at a point, I think, where for a lot of us, and God help us, for a lot of us, breaking that first commandment is like unnoticed. It's so much, it's just like that part of our conscience has sort of gotten seared off. I remember being in seventh grade, and my seventh grade teacher, was, one of my seventh grade teachers was a guy named Mr. Nelms. And Mr. Nelms was telling us what a sociopath was or a psychopath. And he said, yeah, it's just a person without a conscience. Like, they could kill somebody and not even remember it. Just like you or I might kill a fly and think, like, I think I did. And I remember he, like, scratched his face when he was imitating a psychopath. Now, he's a seventh grade teacher of, like, social studies. I'm not sure he's qualified necessarily to tell us what a sociopath is or how they think about murder. That's not the point, though. The point was... That there, there is a, a frightening thing he expressed that I've experienced in my life where I can kind of like sear off my conscience and stop noticing something I'm doing that God hates. So, you know, the last series that we did, we talked about being grounded in God, recognizing our dependence on Him, seeing Him as the center of the universe and the center to which we are looking, the thing that we are worshiping. That's a bigger deal. If you disagree with that part, you're definitely going to disagree with today. 
But that's the bigger deal. And we all stand guilty of that. However, that, not aside, first and foremost, but next to it, culturally, I don't know that there's anything that we rebel against more than when it comes to identity, gender, and relationships, the way we love, sexuality. So we got to talk about it. But I want you to stay with us because what I'm trying to do is not take something. What I'm trying to do is give something. And biblically, I believe that what I'm giving you is infinitely better than anything that you have to give up. That's our argument. And if you are a believer, if you are somebody who's in, then we together have to be so clear about and focused on God's version of this stuff, His definition of this stuff, His love, that we can speak with prophetic clarity. Not anger or volume, but clarity about what's good and what it is that we are trying to give. So, what are we talking about here? What's the problem culturally? Well, in our culture, homosexuality and transgenderism are celebrated. Roles within marriage are controversial. And that whole roles within marriage thing is not controversial just outside of the church. It's controversial in the church. Confusion about what it is to be a man or to be a woman is so constant that it's like air we breathe. Put a microphone in somebody's face. I think they have a hard time outside of biology and defining what a man is and what a woman is. I think culturally we've kind of turned the corner where I don't think for most people they're even asking the questions we're trying to answer. I think for most of the people we're going to talk to, we're going to have to try and create for them a category for why this is something that we're even thinking about or care about. For them, it's so settled that this other way is the way, that going back to something biblical, just it's not even a thought. And our job, again, is not to scream and stomp and be self-righteous, because remember, the bigger law is the one we're breaking all the time. Our job is to articulate why this is so good, why this is so sacred, why changing it feels like trying to change a flag or trying to change a family crest. When you change it, it's not it anymore. I don't know if you've ever tried to figure that out with flags. American flag, got it. But like the Irish flag... And then you flip the colors sideways or you move them a different direction or like you start looking at the flags of Europe, it's difficult. If you flip it, all of a sudden you're not in Ireland anymore, you're in Germany. That's not the same thing. And I know that the colors aren't the same, forgive me. But it's not the same thing. If you change it, you got something different. We see this as something sacred. It is something given by God. We want to understand it, understand it clearly and understand it in a way that we can offer it in a winsome way. And we'll talk about how we do that. Today, though, we're going to talk about what the enemy is up to with this stuff. We're going to talk about what it is that he is trying to destroy, and we're going to talk about what we're going to do about it. So, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul is talking to a church that he's had a lot of back and forth with 
about this guy that was in this crazy sexual sin and the church was supposed to step in and condemn that sin, but also forgive and love this guy. And Paul's leading them through how they're going to love him now that he's repented. It says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, everything else that's going on in these verses, we should talk about, we will one day. But the thing I'm trying to get at is this last part. We won't be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, this verse has always tripped me up because he's, he's assuming that we understand something that, honestly, I don't think I get. It says, you know, you all, we're not ignorant of his designs. Well, obviously, we know this. And every time I read that, I feel like I missed the first day of school. Like, I showed up, and everybody else knew where to put the backpacks, and everybody else knew what was happening next, and I didn't. I had no idea. We all know his schemes. I don't know his schemes. What are his schemes? What verse was that? There's a part of me that gets frustrated, not because I need to understand everything in the Bible. There's lots of stuff in the Bible I don't understand fully, but because he's assuming that I do understand it. It's like him saying, it's in my pocket. Just pull it out. What is it that he's talking about when it comes to being outwitted by the enemy that we're not ignorant of his designs? Well, as you do start to think about it, we do know a lot about the enemy, and we do know a lot about his designs. He's a liar. What he says is a lie. The first lie that he told was to tempt us into being like God. And instead, we got the opposite. We didn't become like God we became like Satan. That's the opposite. He told us that we would be like God, knowing good from evil, and that we would not surely die. What we got instead was we became like Satan, pretending to be God, pretending to be independent and self-determinate, self-causing, self-judging. And what we got was to be pulled out of the garden, to be put away. That's the enemy. He thinks he's God, and he is cast away from God forever. He promised one thing, we got the opposite. I think that's his scheme now. It's not just to separate us from God, and it's not just to try and make us try to be independent, but it's to say the opposite of what he wants. So in a way, we can take what the culture is saying, what the, the culture that is defining itself apart from God and his principles is saying, and we just can kind of flip it on its head and see the truth of it. See, if the culture says that the, the, the new views on sexuality and gender are a fight for freedom and equality, then we can be sure that it's going to enslave The culture says that, that their attempt is, is actually a bold stance for diversity, then we can be sure that, that the results are going to be a soul-crushing sameness. And we're going to make that argument. We're going to look at that. In our culture, when we move away from Christian ideas of sexuality and gender, 
then there's a trend towards being like what the enemy has, is selling towards you, the people that, that believe it. The enemy is trying to make us the same rather than gloriously distinct. I have to be other than you if I can love you. Another prominent thought that I didn't really understand but fits perfectly once you start to see this is from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, there's no real personalities apart from God. Until you have given yourself up to Him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. What do I mean by this? Our culture says that sexual attraction can be expressed toward anyone because we're not defined by our gender. And another way of saying that is that we're all without or apart from gender. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, without being defined by our gender. Another way of saying that is that we are the same, not meaning equal, but meaning without distinction, meaning nothing special. Your bi- our culture says your biological gender can be changed because you can choose it like an outfit. It doesn't define you. But another way of saying that is that we are something without gender, like a people who are no longer able to have different height, different color, different personality. Our culture says men and women in a relationship are the same in every way. But another way of saying that is that male and female are categories without meaning. We are the same. Listen, it is heaven for two who are different to be united. That's what love is. That's heaven. But we're not being sold that union. We're being sold something that flattens us out into the same thing. That's not united. Citizens can be united but be wildly different. We all live in the same culture. We all live in the same city, but all of our houses are very distinct. We're united under the banner of Utah, but if you walk through the neighborhoods of Utah, you see wildly different standards of beauty and order, right? Yeah, you were telling somebody yesterday about your neighbor, weren't you? He didn't understand why he put a big statue of a dragon in his front yard. It wasn't something you thought would be cool. I've seen one. I walked from my house up to here one day, and on the way, there's a dragon. And I'm not judging that guy. Who knows what it's for? Maybe he pretends to ride it. Maybe he pretends to fight it. Maybe he pretends to worship it. I don't know. But he's allowed to do it. And I guarantee you, his neighbor didn't have one. Because he's allowed to be distinct. Because he's not the same. He's united, but he's not the same. But people who do live in the same place, prisoners, all the prison cells are the same. Man, fashion and outfits can differ wildly. You can wear all kinds of weird, fun stuff that maybe I don't get. This is going to be my fashion until Christ takes me home. Jeans and plaid. (laughs) Just dial it up in in my closet. I have like eight plaid shirts, and I have them hung in a very specific order so that I make sure I don't wear the same one two Sundays in a row. 
because I don't have any other criteria other than don't wear the same one two Sundays in a row. (laughs) This is what I will wear. Other people have wonderful senses of beauty and color and matching and expression. Go for it. Different. But in prison, all the uniforms are the same. Do you see the distinction? Sin always leads to death, and distinctions melt away in the grave. The enemy said that we would be like God and we became like him. God says we can never be him. We will always be distinct from him. And yet because of that, he can love us. We can be, we as a distinction, can be with him forever. The enemy says celebrate love And yet, if we are the same, if we've been mashed into the same unit, then you can't love. Love requires there to be another. The enemy says, celebrate diversity. Amen. We're made different, and those differences are very good. We have to maintain those differences. And so, we're not fighting against any gay or trans person. We're not fighting against anybody who attempts to define marriage in this very egalitarian way. We're not fighting. We're trying to show something else. See, the enemy is tempting. He's got this whole world system where he's tempting very willing people, but he's tempting to be like God and then to become like him. We're trying to sow, show something else. And we always get painted like old men who are griping about people on their cell phones. I don't know if you've ever been around an old man. Old men, and not all of them. Uh, but old men, they're always griping about, you know, hey, you, you, you kids on your cell phones. And, and people look at the church that way. Oh, you kids with your new forms of sexuality. That's not what the church is doing. We're much more like people standing on a crowded subway platform watching people jump in front of the train. And they used to be a person and a train, and now it's just a train. We're like people watching. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like this famous video of a fox, and it's like a time lapse of the dead fox in the forest being like processed by the forest and all the microbacteria and everything just like make it no longer a fox. There used to be a fox and the woods, and now there's just the woods. We are fighting to maintain distinction instead of watching some sort of hammer and mangle into humanity into a false sameness. So what's the good thing that we want to protect? God's design that we want to see and show and celebrate and enjoy and sell have other people get excited about, is a real love for the other. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If you were with us last week, I was talking about Eve, uh, uh, Eden and Eve, but I was talking about 
Eden. And the reason I was talking about the garden was I was trying to paint a picture, one of the few pictures we have in Scripture of this really clear idea of what God wanted for us, what He was going for, what was the, the original plan for us. And we talked about all this really cool stuff. There's all these animals, and there's all this fruit, and there's all this um, like good work to be done and beauty in order to see. And then Eve is very good. And the whole idea of it was, was to look at something clear, concrete, and good from God that we could see in order to make us salivate over what will be one day in heaven. Because now we don't have that. Now we're fallen. So the world around us is messed up. And if we want to see what's good, we have to look up to heaven and see what hasn't been stained by sin. So if I want to understand love, I can't look around me I can only see hints of it around me. If I want to understand love, I have to look to heaven. That's the only place where love is still itself, where love is still whole. And that's why we have to have the Trinity. I don't know if you're new to Christianity or not. We have this doctrine, which is called the Trinity. And in the Trinity, (laughs) we are actually saying that we have one God who is three in person. You go, oh, great, you have three gods? No, we have one God. Oh, okay, you have one God. Yeah, but he's three in person. So you have three gods, and it's very who's on first. And we do it with my kids. We talk about it all the time. In their little catechism, we'll ask them the question, and they'll say there is one God in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we go round and round as we try and just talk about it. Because they'll ask, I'll tell them information, and they assume that I understand how that works. And I don't. It's a mystery. And so maybe you get the not-so-novel idea to just chuck it. This Trinity thing, it makes things real confusing. Why don't we just flatten that out and and do something different? Make it three gods or make it one god. Well, what you do when you do that is you create something that's not Christianity. Christianity does teach that you have one god, and yet that god is three in person. If you have that mystery, which the Bible clearly teaches, then what you do get is this understanding of love. This understanding of other, equality, and love. Love can now be the ultimate reality because love is God. God can love. He doesn't have to create us in order to love. He can just love. It means that if you could peer into the center of all things, you wouldn't find something bleak and dark and cold. If you could peer into the center of all things, you would find love, light, joy, happiness that is independent of us. Something so big we can't break it. It's a love that's just there. You get that if you have the Trinity. You take away the Trinity, you lose that. But but the Scripture teaches the Trinity, and the Scripture teaches that God is this happy, infinitely happy in Himself God. He doesn't love himself like a teenager does or should or whatever, and they're in the mirror all day. He loves himself because he is different in person, and he's able to legitimately love the other in even himself. Uh, I don't know, but I'm happy about it because that then becomes our model, our doctrine of gender and sexuality. It allows us to say that men and women are absolutely distinct Absolutely equal, though distinct, not the same, absolutely distinct, absolutely equal, and therefore able. 
to absolutely love. That's our ideal of love. In the old times, they elevate one gender over another and women become property. In the new times today, they hammer down any distinction between men and women, between gender. But what you lose, you lose heaven itself. You lose the possibility of real love. So my goal in all of this is not to stomp out something awful. My, my goal, my primary goal is to protect something wonderful. I'm not trying to like march out into the world and kill every snake out there. But I am trying to stop any snake that gets into my children's bedroom. There's something here that we love that we want to protect. Now, how do we go about doing that? The Bible gives us really clear and wildly different than maybe expectation instructions on how to deal with people that disagree with us. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When we do evangelism training here, we talk about how to make disciples in our state, and we, we start with these verses. Because when you're talking to somebody, you're not trying to win them in an argument. You're trying to love them so that they see the truth of love. You're not going to get sidetracked into these ignorant controversies, into being quarrelsome, but kind, able. You're able to teach. You're able to articulate our position. So much of the, the way the culture is moving, it moves sort of free form because nobody's able to articulate the other side. People are able to huff about change. But are they able to articulate a winsome vision of why this is better than that? We should be able to. If we love these other people, we're going to try to figure out how to. We've got to patiently endure evil. It won't take long before you're snubbed, sneered at. You get painted with that label, bigot. You can be patient. You're going to fight. Oh, no, you don't call me that. You! Oh, that's not what we're called to do. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting. We have a position. We're advocating. Correcting with gentleness. How does a mom correct a child? I mean, sometimes it's violent. <laughs> I mean, generally, you know, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty gentle. 
Because she loves. If we love, we're going to correct with gentleness so that perhaps they'll come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. They're snared. Oh, man, that picture is so helpful because I don't see these people who disagree with me, who approve of homosexuality, approve of transgenderism, approve of this egalitarianism of just like total equality. There is no distinction. I don't see those people as my enemy. They're not. They're snared by the enemy. Oh, I'm free to just love them, to weep over them and cry because I love them, and they're stuck. So I can be patient, and I can be gentle. I can be teachable. Oh, man, show me the error of my ways. It's not my wisdom I'm even saying. I'm saying God's wisdom. Show me. I can do that because, gosh, I love them. And I have faith that perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They might come to their senses. There may be victory. Because God's doing it, there may be victory for anyone you speak to. So, how do we do this? Well, let's continue with that passage in 1 John 4 where it's telling us that God is love. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest for us. This is one of those upside-down sentences because of the Greek. You kind of like, oh. But he's about to say what this is. Watch out because what I'm about to tell you is the love of God made manifest among us. What? Well, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Live because of him. Live like him. Live with life that he gives us. Live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, beloved. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, if you're reading this and you're like most people, that propitiation word, you just kind of skip over it because who wants to look it up? But that word propitiation is saying that we are the ones, uh, the, the son is the one who took our sins on himself to propitiate. It's like to sponge up. Like he, he got our sin and he sucked it up onto himself and then he experienced the full wrath of God, not for his sin, but for our sin. And him showing that kind of love, being willing to suffer for us, that's our model. So can you write a Facebook post that does that? Maybe. Shakespeare, I don't know. Are you that incredible? Probably you can't. That communicates that kind of love while also tweaking? I don't know. I hope somebody can. We are called to do it. We are called to stay, stay loving and, and not to be aloof, judgmental, pretending like we don't have the same sin. I can't preach to you about sexual purity. I'm not pure. But I can tell you what God says and why God says it's better. And I can't judge you because I'm not the judge. But he's spoken And he loves like crazy. He loves enough to send his son to die for you. Do you know that love? Do you know it well enough to show it to other people who need to know this truth? 
Because most Christians either bow to the culture or just judge and get aloof from the culture. We're not called to do that. We're called to be Jesus. And we can only do it as we live through him. So come back next week. Buckle up. We got lots to talk about. It's going to get weird. It's going to get uncomfortable. There's not going to be graphs or anything. We're not going to talk about sexuality that way. But we are going to talk about a lot of stuff. I need your prayers. And we need your prayers. We need to be praying that God teaches us to be a place that really is that weird, wonderful salt cure that's able to show the world both love and light. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, will you please make us that? You know that we are not wise. You know that we're not some perfect debaters that can just get out there and show the world their folly. But if we see your love and are convicted to show your love, then maybe over time, patiently, we can endure well enough to see you bring some out of the snare of the devil. And Lord, it will be suffering for us to do that, but it will be a suffering like the suffering of the one who died in our place. Lord, will you let us see that and show that to the world for your glory and our and their good. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.